Good morning. My name is Kristen. Um, I probably know a lot of you. Uh, I, I realized this last service before I got up there, I was trying to think of how long that I've known David. And I realized that like it used to be fun to talk about how long that we've known each other. And at some point in time, it just started feeling, making me feel old. So I'm not going to tell you how long that we've known them. Just know this. I was younger than both of my children when I met the Culps for the first time. And I was probably 18 when, actually I was 18, when I got in some trouble and my parents decided that they were going to send me with David and Crystal to Mid-America Bible College for spring break instead of go on spring break with all of my friends and them. And um, I just was mortified, but then I met the Lord on that Mid-America campus uh, with David and Crystal that weekend, and that just started a whole new journey for me. So I guess the Lord did know what he was doing, even though I'm still like, really? I went to Mid-America with, on my senior year of my spring break. But uh, you guys are in the middle of a series on faith, right? Hebrews 11, and I get to talk about Rahab. And so I know that you have probably already gone through the intro of this series multiple times. Uh, so I'm going to pick up like right where Rahab is. I'm going to read that little blurb, and then I want to tell you the story. And then I'm going to pull out just three things that I want to pull out for you, and then we'll move into sort of a response time. So here's what it says in Hebrews 11:31: By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So here's what you need to know. Rahab was a Canaanite, and she was an enemy of the Israelites. Now, what's happening in the, about the book of Joshua uh, is the Israelites have been traveling. They've been wandering through the wilderness, the journey from out of Egypt, being rescued out of Egypt to get to the promised land. Uh, what should have taken them about 11 days ends up taking them about 40 years. Uh, now they are on the edge of the promised land, the land that God had promised to them. He said, in this land, you will have everything that you need. Uh, you'll be taken care of. And now Joshua, Moses has died and Joshua has taken over. And so Joshua, right as we get to about where Rahab picks up, is he's going to send some spies into this land to see what they're up against, right? He knows they're going to take it over, uh, but it's not wrong to be prepared. So he sends these spies into the land. They actually go to Rahab, the prostitute's house. Rahab welcomes them in, and then Scripture says that she puts them up on her roof. She sort of hides them under the roofing, and the, the king at that time caught wind that these spies were here. They've all been hearing sort of uh, rustling of what God is doing, that these people are coming, and uh, so there's a little bit of uh, anticipation and fear happening in the community. He sends his soldiers to Rahab's house. They knock on the door. They're like, Have you, there were two men that came to your house. And then she says to them, yes, but they left and I don't know where they went. If you hurry quickly, you might be able to find them. So meanwhile, these guys are hiding, right? They're hiding up on her roof underneath something. And then after they leave to go find them, once they had left and the city gates had shut, she goes up and has a conversation with uh, these two men, these two soldiers from Joshua's army. And she says, listen, here's what I did. If you wait, here's what you need to do. Go out of the gate. You're going to go to the left. You're going to wait for three days. Once the men have passed back by you, you'll be safe to go back to your camp. Here's what I would like you to do in return for my favor towards you. Would you spare my family? Would you spare us? I know you're coming. I know God has done what he said. I've heard the stories of him parting the Red Sea. I've heard about what you did and the destruction that happened in the other towns because God's favor is on you. So when you come into my community to take over what I know God has given to you, will you please remember me and my family? And the, 
they say, okay, perfect, here's how we're going to know. You hang a red scarlet out, on, out of your window, the same window that we're about to go out, will you put that right there? And get your family into your house and keep them in that space. Whoever's in your house, we will not lay a hand on our lives for your lives. As long as you follow through with what you've promised to do, we will follow through with what you've promised to do. And then we enter into Rahab. Here is this woman who does not know, has not experienced the move of God, is not a part of the community that he's building. She's a prostitute and she is spending her life in a community that doesn't know God and enters in these two soldiers who are representative of the Israelites and all of the moves of God that she's only ever heard about. She's not seen them, nor has she experienced them. She's only heard testimony of what God has done. And so these guys come in, and that, that's where we pick up in the story of Rahab's faith. So the first, the first point I want to share with you is this. Rahab had to make a choice. Your faith requires a choice. There, there's always these two lines, these two stories being played out in your life, right? There's always the work that you're doing and the community that you're building and the people that you're living with and the life that you're living. And then there is God's presence. God is always active and present in our everyday actual life. And so there is always a second story developing everywhere you go at all the time. Everywhere you step your foot is what Joshua said. You're stepping on land that he's already given you so you can be strong and courageous. You don't have to fear. So the reality is there, there are these two storylines playing out in Rahab's life. She has the storyline of what she's experienced. This is her community, her home. This is actually her king. These are her king's men that are coming to her. But then here's this different thing that she's not actually experienced. She's only ever heard of. Here are these men that represent the living God that she's heard stories about that can part the waters, that can move the mountains, that can conquer all kinds of things. And, and so when these guys show up at her door, she has a decision to make. Is she willing to forego everything that she has lived by up until this point and embrace this thing that she thinks she believes to be true about this community of people that she doesn't even know or will she choose to always do what she's always done, which is just continue to live in this community and to live out this journey? And here's the thing. My day is made up of thousands of different choices that look like that. Some of them are small. Some of them are big. Some of them I don't have to think about. Others of them I have to spend time thinking and praying and discerning what the invitation is of God before me. All the time I have to make a choice. Will I choose to continue to build what I'm building? Or will I choose to lay this down and pick up whatever it is that the kingdom of God has interrupted in my life? Whatever it is that I sense him doing. And here's, here's what I love about this. Rahab is a prostitute. I don't really need to explain what that is. So this is what she spends her time doing. She's a prostitute. She doesn't know God. Like she doesn't know. So like what the Israelites have been told is proper behavior and all of the holiness of God, all of that. She doesn't know any of that. So she's just doing what she knows to do in her community, okay? And so what she's going to have to do in this community to 
to have faith in the God that she's hearing about is she's going to have to lay down what she knows to do, the thing that provides security for her family, the thing that financially stabilizes her family, that she's grown up being told this is what she gets to do. She's going to have to lay that down and step into something that doesn't make any sense at all, that puts her life at risk, that puts her livelihood at risk, because she can't be a prostitute, she can't be prostituting while she hides these men. Like those two things cannot coincide. She cannot do them both at the exact same time. That's just not gonna work, right? I don't have imagination to figure out how she would partner with these two guys, hiding them on her roof and, and continue to provide for herself in the way that she's always provided for herself. She has a choice to make. This is the same crossroads that we come at in regards to our faith. We have a choice to make because we have figured out, we are intelligent people, we have figured out how to provide for ourselves, how to take care of ourselves, how to build. None of that's wrong. But when the kingdom of God interrupts the way that I am providing for myself, I have to have a choice to make. Will I lay down what I'm doing and will I pick up what he's doing? And so here's, here's the best part about this. God meets us in our reality. And so I actually love that Rahab has that storyline because here's what I think could have happened. In that moment, here comes these two soldiers and they're walking up and I think her temptation could have been to point out who she was and all the things that she had done thus far that would disqualify her for having faith in God and having faith that the kingdom of heaven can actually be right here and right now, right? But God's not in her past. He's not stuck in that space. He's not worried that she's a prostitute, right? Well, shoot, if she wouldn't have done those things, she could actually help our kingdom come in this moment. That, that's not what he does. Also, she could have been more focused on her future, right? The, the next couple of days, the next couple of weeks. Well, what happens if and what happens when? And what if this person does this and that person does that? And playing out all of these storylines in her head about how helping in this present moment and having faith in this present moment would actually be a problem in the future. And, and God doesn't really meet her in that space either. Because why? Because scripture says, what, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow has enough worries about itself. I take care of the fields and I take care of the flowers when I also take care of you. And Jesus says in the, um, in the book of Matthew, when he's teaching the disciples how to pray, he actually says, you should do this. You should say, give us this day our daily bread. He is the bread of life. And he's actually instructing his disciples, ask today for what you need for today. And a lot of the times our issue in choosing to walk in, in faith is because we're hung up on what did or didn't happen yesterday. And we're worried about what may or may not happen tomorrow. And so it, it sort of straps us in the present moment with an inability to have faith. We can't choose for today to partner with him because of the way we did or didn't choose in the past and the way that this choice may or may not impact us in the future. And so we become limited in our ability to have faith. But the faith that we need for today is actually happening right now in this given moment. Jesus promises that literally when you need the words, I will put them in your mouth. When you need the defense, I will fight for you. When you need the food, I will feed you. When you need the clothes, I will cover you. Do not store up for yourself 
treasures on earth because they will just get destroyed. And so oftentimes, if we're just really honest with one another, we find so much security in what we have or what we're chasing or what we've been given that we are limited in our ability to have faith in how he's going to provide and how the, his storyline is going to roll out in our life. And Rahab just, she just went with it. In that moment, the way that she was living didn't limit her to the way that she could live. If in that moment she chooses. The other thing that makes me really excited about this is the reality is we are always only one choice away from the transforming power of the kingdom of God. She was a prostitute. Her life was hopeless. She was doomed and going towards death. Her community was about to be overtaken and she would physically die, but she also was going to spiritually die. And in this moment, she chose to put her faith in something that transformed her entire life and the entire life of her family in one moment. In one moment, all that she had done was gone and all that she would be and become would be different. And not only that, but it affected all of the generations. She's actually in the genealogy of Jesus. Like for generations, the way that she chose to access her faith, it changed generations of people coming behind her for what she did in one moment. And so the transforming power of Jesus that meets us in our reality is so what we need. It's so what we need right now, right now in this space, right now. God is present and he is working. He has exactly what you need for this moment, for this moment, exactly what you need. He's not worried about what's happened. He's also not worried about what's happening after this. He has what you need right now in this moment. And so your faith and accessing your faith is about making this choice in this moment. Will you give Jesus all that you know of yourself and all that you know of, of your situation? And will you trust him in this moment? Not worry about what's to come and not get hung up on what's already come. But just focus in this moment and have that kind of faith. The second thing is this. Faith involves action. Listen, in Hebrews 11... The word faith is a verb. It's an action verb. Now, a verb is something that is an occurrence or a state of being. And the way that you know if something is an action verb or it's not an action verb is basically you read the sentence and you ask yourself the question, is this something that someone can do? If the answer to that question is yes, then the word action gets to go in front of your verb. It has now become an action verb. Now, there are some instances, my daughter's middle name is Faith. There are some instances where the word faith is not an action verb. Except for when I'm like using her middle name because she's not hearing what I'm saying and then there better be some action behind that little place right there. Other than that, it's, very, it's pretty much inactive, right? I just write it on a piece of paper, use it as a password here or there, you know. But in the book of Hebrews, when you read chapter 11, it's almost impossible to separate action from every single time that it's mentioned. It is always mentioned in reference to something that somebody did, an action that they took. And what that tells us is that faith is not something that you have as much as faith is something that you do, right? Rahab didn't have faith. She did faith. Right? Because anybody can say God is always present and at work. But if I say God is always present and at work and I never 
join him in anything that he's doing, do I really have faith that God is always present and at work? Or is that just something that I said? Right? If anybody can say, God is my father, he meets all my needs, he, he makes me lie down in still pastures, he leads me beside, he leads me behind still waters, he makes me lie down in still pastures, like, he will provide, he will meet, we can all say those things. But does that faith look like action? When I'm backed into a corner and I actually need my needs to be met, who do I turn to? Do I turn to myself? Do I work harder and be smarter and stress and strive and produce and perform? Or do I turn to the Father and do I have faith that he who began a good work would see it through to completion? If he's called me to it, he will see me through it. And if there's a need that I actually need that I don't have the ability to meet, I can have faith that he who has promised is faithful and that he will hand me the provision that I, not because I'm doing nothing and I'm just saying words, but because the active participation in faith, sometimes I feel like actively having faith, it requires more faith for me to do nothing but trust the Lord than it does for me to do everything but trust my, and trust in myself. Like it would be easier for me to work to provide for myself than it would for me to work to trust in his provision. And so my faith is limited because I'm putting it in myself and my ability rather than putting it in him and his promises, right? So if you look at Hebrews 11, it says that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Let me just give you a couple definitions. Assurance is this, confidence or certainty. So when you have assurance of something, you are confident in it, you are certain of it. When you have a conviction over something, you have a firmly held belief or opinion. So put that together and let's read that passage a little bit differently. Faith is the confidence and cert certainty that I have in a firmly held belief that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do, even when I can't see or hear. Right? When I can't see it, I can still have the faith to believe it. Why? Because I have a confidence or a certainty that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. I'm going to put my faith, not in what I'm experiencing in this present moment, right? Because I can't see it. Because if I can see it, then it doesn't have faith to believe it. It doesn't take faith to believe it. But I'm going to be confident and certain in what I know that he has promised to do action therefore becomes the evidence of my certainty right the action what I actually do scripture would say that the evidence of knowing God is an act of faith I can't just say God is always present at work I actually have to join in his work right I can't just say God is my father who longs to give I actually have to trust in his provision it's like this I buy my kids a coat if they want to be warm they wear their coat I don't understand right if there's like something in middle school you just like don't wear a coat and then you get to high school and it's like they can't even spell coat. Like at, literally, Addie just texted me. She's at the beach. I don't know, some, we came like two weeks ago and it's cold. We came back today, it's cold again. So no offense, but like that's not what we were expecting. She literally just texted me like, hurry up, it's so cold. I'm sorry that you're enjoying your time at the beach while I'm working. I'll try to hurry up. How about you put the sweatshirt on that you brought? Like put it on over your bathing suit, go in, go in a store, go to the shop. I don't really care. Be warm. 
don't call me. I'm working. I'm talking. I'm having fun. Not with you. So I don't, I don't understand. She has a $60 sweatshirt that will provide warmth. I have faith in that sweatshirt. And she's texting me like, hurry up. Like, wait, stop. I'm not going to make you warm even when I get there. But I have faith that these things that we have bought you or that you have bought yourself will provide what you're looking for. And like, this is totally what we do. We say that we have faith in something that we sit on our shelf or that we even go to once a week or that we even sing about. But then when we're put in this situation, I'm like, hurry up. Right? I I don't have time to get into this story, but one time during COVID, I was delusional and Dave and I bought 37 acres and decided to turn it into a neighborhood and convince our four best friends to sell all their houses and build houses together. And um, I I still live with my in-laws. And (laughs) two years later, and lots of arguments with my best friends and uh, spending all of our money, and I actually have a hole in the ground as of Thursday. But literally, I had said to the Lord multiple times, I'm pretty sure this was your idea. Why am I living next door to my in-laws? Like in the bedroom next door, not like next door in a house. What's happening? Why aren't, why don't we, I thought I was moving into a house. I just broke ground on a house. So I've had to access a level of trust and faith in something that I haven't seen for quite a long time. And I just keep wanting to say to the Lord, hurry up. And he's like, I don't waste any of your time. I haven't wasted one single minute. All of these things that have happened needed to happen and all of the conversations that you've had and all of the tears and all of the character building. All of these things are your faith and your endurance being increased and I just wanted him to hurry. I still kind of want him to hurry. I mean, I love my in-laws, but come on. At the end of the day, my mother-in-law sent me the side note. I didn't tell anybody else this. She sent me this cute little picture. She's like in Amish country for her anniversary. And she sent me this cute little picture that talked about, I know that she was referencing me because my daughter's about to graduate and she was like give, trying to be so like nice to me. And all, like when, you, when your kids leave your house, they're gonna have an open door. Pray that they always walk right through the door, that they make themselves at home. I texted her back like, no, it doesn't say pray that they move into the master bedroom and move you into the side bedroom and take over with their teenagers and all the things. And she's like, oh yeah, it doesn't say that. Ha ha. Like, so we far exceeded the expectation of this little picture for you. You're welcome. And she's like, bless you. Bless you so much. So here's what happened. Uh, you have to have, so faith is, about, um, faith is about this action, this evidence, this thing. So Ella is in her senior year. Sorry, I want to get back to this story. Ella's in her senior year. I don't know if you know this, but she just graduated. Senior year is like seventh grade year. They're both terrible. Uh, depending on where you're at, right? Like she was going to college her senior year. So she kind of was in this place where she's not like in this place. So she's kind of a senior, but she's really a freshman in college. So she's kind of a teenager, but she's living the life of an adult. And there's just this, it's just been really difficult. And so there's been a lot of tears. There's been a lot of disappointments because she's got friends that are still really seniors in high school and they're living the life of a senior in high school. But she's living the life of a, like she has like these responsibilities of of an actual adult and a homework level of an actual adult. And so it's been really difficult. So she turned 18 two Sundays ago. And what she wanted to do was come to St. Joe, uh, to Mimi's house, which is Crystal, if you don't know. And I don't know if you've had her scones yet, but like that's all Ella wanted for her birthday 
was that and Taylor Swift tickets, which I don't know if you know this, that was like no big deal to get some Taylor Swift tickets, but that was all she wanted, right? Just Taylor Swift tickets and Mimi's scones. So um, I'm just moving mountains to make the Taylor Swift tickets happen, but the scones was actually doable. So we showed up and we showed up with an array of tears because we were bringing three girls, long story, but we ended up bringing one. So one friend didn't cancel last minute on Ella on her 18th birthday. And we showed up uh, with one friend. And now the night before, as all of these are happening, all the tears are happening, right? She's like, let's just leave now. I just want to leave now. And I'm like, it's 10 o'clock at night, 11, 12, 1, 2. I don't think that can work. I don't think we can walk into David and Crystal's house at 2.30 in the morning. Um, so I will leave as early as you want to leave. She's like, okay, I want to leave at 5 a.m. I'm like, well, that's convenient for you because you're going to sleep in the car. I'll wake you up when we get there. But, you know, it's what mom does. She, it's her 18th birthday. She's cried all day. If she wants to leave at 5 a.m., I'm getting up at 5 a.m. So I get up at 5 a.m. and I drive to Michigan. I wake them up when we get to Starbucks about three hours into the trip. And I tell them they have to get up. It's time. And then they go back to sleep. Who drinks Starbucks and then goes back to sleep? I don't know. It's like a gift that they have. So I drink Starbucks and I'm awake all night, but she drinks it. They went back to bed. So I woke them up when we got to St. Joe. Now, here's what you don't know. I could literally show you my prayer journal right now. And I have never prayed so hard in my life for the favor and protection of the future friends that are going to come into my daughter's life. I'm very aware of the transition that's happening. She's about to go to college. She's going to leave behind all of the things that she's known up to this point, and she's going to go into this school, and she's going to make new friends. She's going to meet new teachers. She's going to have new mentors. And I, I also am very aware, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future, right? I spent a lot of time in student ministries, and that's what we would say to our students all the time. Show me the people that you hang out with, and I'll show you what your future life is going to look like. And so there's this thing inside of me that understands something that she doesn't understand. And so I have just prayed for the Lord. I also have a lot of disappointment in the friends that she's had this past year and how they've hurt her and what's happened here or there. Not that she's perfect because she's done things too, but just all of the brokenness that we've experienced as a family and the tears. And so there's a lot of hesitation for me to put my faith in his provision and the way that he'll take care of her. So I literally like, Lord, I know that you have her future. I know that you ordained her steps. I know that you have the ability to only put the exact right people in front of her. I know that. Will you please do it? And BTW, will you show me that you're doing it so that I can have enough faith not to be awake all night? And, you know, he's so good. Like, he's so kind. He's like, sure, I'll do that. So we get to Michigan. Now, remember this. Two friends bailed us on our way here. We got up at 5 o'clock in the morning. That was not in the plan. We get to Michigan. I call Crystal. She's at the church. I'm like, meet us for lunch over, you know, over there. And so we, we're meeting Crystal for lunch, and we're walking down the main strip over there by the boulevard end. And we see up ahead, there's a girl named Sid and her, her friend, cute little blonde girls, and they, you can tell they've been at work. And Crystal's like, oh my gosh, that's Sid. I've been wanting to introduce Ella to Sid. Sid's going to UC. Ella's going to UC. Sid goes to First Church. I don't really know, but like she's just telling me all these things about Sid. And then up, up walks Sid, and now we introduce the two girls. Well, Sid and the girl that's with her are both going to UC, which happens to be where Ella and Lauren, who came with us, are going. I, do you know, do you, anybody know what UC is? Like, I don't even know if people in Michigan know about the University of Cincinnati because you're so focused on, like, 
the Ohio State University, but like the University of Cincinnati is actually a thing where I live that's about 40 minutes from my house. And so like apparently there's two girls, uh, one that goes to church here that's going to the University of Cincinnati. And, and so the two girls start talking and there's just so many words. Like, I don't know if you know this, but like there's... There's a lot of words that happen when like girls meet for the first time and they're excited about something. So I'm just like, oh, I can say, do you want to go to dinner really fast? It took them a long time to get there, but they got there. And then Sid's like, well, I want to introduce you to my two other friends that are also from St. Joe. They go to St. Joe High School and they're going to UC and let's all go out to dinner. So these six girls meet and they go out to dinner and then we get a text message. I'm with David and Crystal and we get a text message like, hey, Mimi, can I bring everybody back over to your house? And Crystal's like, yeah. She's like, great. I already told him we're on our way. And so we put some cookies in the oven and these girls all walk into the house. David's like, whoa, this is what it's like to have teenage girls because he had boys. So he doesn't, they just don't talk right? Like the, the amount of words in my house compared to in the Culp house, like they need a week of vacation just to rest when my teenage girls leave their house. And now there's six of them and we're sitting in the basement so we can hear all they're saying. And it's just like, and they're just like all this thing. So I walk up steps and I think I brought a picture. If you guys can throw that up. I walked upstairs because I'm so aware of the presence of God. Like, I'm so aware that none of this was accidental. I'm so aware of his sovereignty. I'm so aware of my desperate prayers as, my, as her mom of, Lord, would you just please, just please bring the right people into her path. That when he actually does it, what happens to my faith? It just goes through the roof. Like, he's got her. And so I go upstairs and I tell the girls, like, I need you guys to, like, take a picture. It looks like they've known each other for 10 years, 10 minutes. Okay, maybe a little bit longer. They actually had dinner together. Now, Dave and I left our house yesterday at 2.30 p.m., 10 minutes after Sid walked into our door. So Ella and Sydney are at church in Cincinnati together right now while we're at church in St. Now, tell me that the Lord doesn't take care of my kid. Like, tell me that he's not faithful. I couldn't have made that happen. Crystal couldn't have made that happen. He knew exactly where she needed to be and when she needed to be there. He knew exactly who to put in front of her path. That doesn't mean that it's going to be all butterflies and rainbows from here on out. But it does mean that when I struggle to have faith, when I struggle to be active in my faith toward my daughter, I can remember God's faithfulness to her in this moment. And I can recall what he's done. And I have evidence for what he will do. Right? And here's what's happened. In this room, there is a history of how God's hand has moved in your life. He's rescued you here. He's redeemed you there. He's done this over here. He's heard you here. He's answered. I don't know how he's done it, but I know that he has. And if you don't have that history, I know that he wants that for you. He has plans to give you a purpose and a future and a hope and security he has plans to fulfill all of your needs and all of your desires and even all of your wants. And he wants to build that with you, but that takes action. I cannot just only ever say that God cares about my kids more than I do. I have to actually take the steps that show I trust him to care about my kids more than I do. I trust him to show up in their lives and I have to step back and not move on my own because of what I know he will do. And so this is what Rahab did. If you think about it in the story of Rahab, this is exactly what she did. She 
always knew what she knew until all of a sudden she had this invitation to know in an active way what she didn't yet know in an interpersonal way. And so because of her choice to activate her faith in that moment, she was rescued and redeemed and restored and her entire family was impacted by what God was going to do for her and in the future through her because of what was coming. So this gets me to the last point, which I wanna, faith involves surrender. I don't wanna talk about anxiety here for a minute. And here's what I wanna, I wanna tell you this. I'm, I'm actually wrapping up my last semester in my master's in counseling degree, but this actually deserves an entire uh, summer of sermon series. It deserves, it deserves a year of counseling, lots of discipleship table groups that you, like the topic of control and anxiety and surrender This is way more multifaceted than I can tackle in 10 minutes, but I want to create an awareness in you because I believe this. Faith involves surrender, and in order to surrender, we have to let go of control. And what I know about myself is when I control things, or when I have the perception of control in my life, I hold the reins and I I cannot walk in surrender. I cannot surrender and hold on at the same time, right? I cannot manipulate Ella's future and also at the same time have faith that God's got her and he's gonna take care of her. And so the two for me do not intersect. And so in order for there to be faith and surrender in my life, there has to be a release of control. And so there's a definition I wanna give you. The American Psychiatric Association defines anxiety like this. The anticipation of future concern, okay? Anxiety is the anticipation of future concern. So it's me worrying about, thinking about, guessing what might cause me to worry in the future, right? So it doesn't, it's nothing's definite. It's just anxiety is what I think about, I might worry, or what I worry about worrying about in my future, Okay, so regardless of the behavior that results from anxiety, now here, when I feel anxious, right, when my, my anxious feelings get behind the driver's seat of my car, I, I do different things. Anxiety manifests differently in everybody. So some people, they overperform when they're anxious, right? They're just white knuckle it. They're able to get lots of things done. Externally, it might look like nothing's wrong. You might really benefit from someone who's anxious that overperforms. But internally, it's a wreck, right? What's driving them is anxiety and angst, the need to control, a lack of faith, doubt, insecurity, fear, all those things. Now, some people, when they're anxious, they shut down. They actually can't do anything. Some people, when they're anxious, they don't eat, Some people, when they're anxious, they overeat. Some people, when they're anxious, they go shopping. Other people, when they're anxious, they don't spend any money. They hold on to everything, right? The way that it manifests in all of us is differently. Sometimes when we're anxious, we yell at our kids. We try to control what they're doing. Other times when we're anxious, we don't even talk to our kids. We go in a room and we, tell, we hope that they take care of themselves, right? The manifestation of this is different in every person in every place. But the reality of the, is this. When we are anxious, we don't have the peace that surpasses all understanding, right? So in order for me to have faith, I have to have peace and security. 
That is a fruit that manifests inside of me that when the peace of God drives my car, what I do is different than when the anxiety of this world drives my car. But they both can't be driving my car at the same time. I have given to one. I've surrendered to one of them. Okay, now I'm, I'm reading this book, and it's called The Cost of Control. Um, the author's name is Sharon Miller. I'm actually my second way through this book. So if, I would highly recommend it. It's going to take you a long time to read it. Don't listen to it. I tried that. It didn't work because it it's just a hard, there's so much that you want to know. I like to write in it. So in this book, she gives some statistics. I want to give these to you because I think it's important. Uh, in 2011, so between 2011 and 2018, they took a college survey that found the rate of moderate to severe anxiety rose from 17.9%. So in 2013, it was 17.9% of college students in the United States were, uh, had severe anxiety. And from, from 2013 to 2018, so within five years, that number has risen to 34.4%. Now, it's almost been five years again, so I don't know what that statistic is, but I think it's probably safe to say we've probably done it again, right? And so here, here's her quote. This, this just, this wrecked me as a mom of young adults. This, young adults born after 1995 are safer than they've ever been. They are safer drivers. They're less likely to get into car accidents. They are also less likely to binge drink or use marijuana. They are less likely to get into physical fights. They are less likely to be victims of homicide and are generally more cautious and risk adverse. Parents have succeeded in keeping an entire generation of young people very physically safe, which is what makes the rise of anxiety even more curious. Why are we more anxious when there is seemingly less to fear? And she goes on to, to talk about how our access to the, the level of knowledge that we have access to and the illusion of control that it gives us, that it would give me as, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. I can right now pull up my phone. I can go to Life 360. I can see, okay. Elle is at, at church right now. Well, she's not always at church, so it just worked out in her favor right now. So I can see that she drove. Let me just tell you, it took her, her top speed while she was driving. It took her five minutes to get to church. Her top speed was 56 miles an hour. She had zero stops on that, on that trip. And that's because we have roundabouts all over our town. We don't really stop. We just go around in circles. And we only stop when people don't know how to use the roundabouts. That's when I have to depend on the Holy Spirit. Um, she had zero crash detection, so there was, no, there was no almost accidents on the I can see all of that right now. I'm in St. Joe. She's in Cincinnati at church. I have this knowledge, and here's what this knowledge does. Here's the reality of this. This isn't helping me keep her safe right now in Cincinnati, right? I, this that app and my ability to know all of those things about what Ella did during those five minutes of her drive from my house to her church, I, that actually doesn't help me keep her secure. Why would I put my trust in this device? Why would I trust this to take care of my daughter instead of trusting the sovereignty of the one who actually holds her in his hands? 
Like my temptation is to put more faith in my control of everything that she does or doesn't do rather than to put my faith in my release of all that she is under the sovereignty of God who knows her and loves her and created her and has plans for her and a purpose for her. When I hold on and to the illusion that I'm in charge of what happens in her life, guess what happens? Anxiety fills me. When I surrender and I come before the Lord who actually is sovereign in her life, guess what happens? I have the peace that surpasses all understanding. Again and again and again and again. And we do this in all the things. The band is going to come up because here's what I want to do. We do this with our finances, right? I hold on to the fact that, like, I have enough. I have what I need to give me where I'm going and to get me where I'm going rather than I hold on rather than letting him hold on. We do this with our relationships. The more that I know, the more that I hold on to, the safer they're going to be, the more secure I'm going to be about my future. We do this with our jobs. We do this with our family members. We do this in our marriage. We definitely do this with our kids. We think that the more that we know, the more control we have, the better off we're going to be. The reality is no different than it was in the garden. Adam and Eve weren't created to know what God knew. They were just created to be taken care of. He gave them everything they needed for significant security and belonging. The enemy came in and convinced them that if they knew more, they would have access to more. That was a lie, and we're still dealing with the consequences of it. You cannot have faith and hold on to control. The very definition requires that you release it, that you trust in something, that you trust in someone. And so here's what I want to do. As they take you into this last song, I just want to ask you this question. Is it possible that you have surrendered to the wrong thing? Are you finding security in something that you know, something that you have, something that you're holding on to, something that you're doing, instead of the one who wrote every single one of your days already? the one who promises to never leave you, to never forget you, to never forsake you, to never fail you, the one who loves you enough to die for you. Which one are you putting your faith in? And I'm gonna invite you to stand up for a minute. Will you just put your hand on your heart? And here's what I want you to do while they go into this song. I don't know about for you, but for me, when I get anxious, I can feel it in my body, my my. My chest tightens, my, my jaw tightens, my tongue's on the roof of my mouth, right? Like all of that, we clench all, we can feel it. I want you to have this moment where you let your body tell you what's going on inside of, inside of you. Is there something in your space, in your life that you need to surrender to the Lord, that you need to have faith? If you've never met Jesus, then you need to know this. There is no one that can take care of you like Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or where you're going. There absolutely is no security outside of a relationship with him. You won't find it. This world will fail you every single time. If not immediately, eventually. If you know him, then you know. This is a daily discipline. Paul says, I die daily. I surrender daily to have faith that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he does. 
And so no matter where you're at, I do believe I'm not the only person that has to offer up my anxiety to the Lord and ask him to interrupt my day and increase my faith. Would you just do this? As they're singing, just have that moment. Have that moment where you feel your soul and you offer it to him. And at some point in time, I'm a big, like, I'm a big demonstrator. At some point in time, would you just put your hands out and to demonstrate to the Lord that like, I'm taking what's in here and I'm just gonna give it to you. And would you just have that moment with him and then I'll come back up here and close us out.
got up this morning and I was studying and I had this picture in my head sort of uh, thinking about you guys and what today looked like and there really was like these two buckets and the idea is not that I have faith or I don't have faith. It's that I put more of my change in the bucket of my faith than I put in the bucket of my unbelief, right? It's not that I do it perfectly because I promise there are moments where I don't, I lack all of the faith in the world. It's that when I do it, I, I do it presently and I do it more. And so what, what the picture in my head is like, there are people even in this room who when you look at them, you're like, they have so much faith. God is doing so much in their life. And the only difference between you and them is that they've just put more change in their bucket. They've just built it up because faith is a gift and what we do grows it in our lives. And so it's not that you don't have access to what they have access to, right? It's just that you're spending your change differently. And the, the transition that needs to make in your, in your life is literally just start putting more change in the bucket that chooses to have faith that God is who he says he is and God will do what he says he will do. And stop putting more change in the bucket that questions everything that he said, right? Like it, it really is about you just choosing what you want to do. And so uh, I want to pray that as they close, I want to, I want to pray that over you. And like, that, that's my challenge for you. Like as you go out, figure out what it looks like to build up a bucket of change that is based and built on the faithfulness of God in your life because of the faith that you have had, right? And and if, if one day you put five coins in this and you put two coins in this, it's not over. Just the next day, put seven coins in this, right? Or, or seven, don't put seven coins in the don't do it. Put seven coins, you got me. Seven coins over here. I'm, I do words, not money, so got it. All right, so let me, let me pray over you. And then as they, I'll let you guys close and you guys can dismiss them. Uh, and so, Lord, would you just increase the faith in this room? And I understand, Lord, when I ask you to increase our faith, I literally am asking you to put us in situations where we will be uncomfortable and have to stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in you. But I'm going to ask you to do that anyway. Would you put us in situations where we get to depend on you? Put us in situations where we need your provision. Put us in situations where we need your presence. Help us build a history of your faithfulness that we will testify about that will actually change the generations of people that come behind us. Would you do that for the people in this room? Would you do that for me? Would you do that for my kids, Lord? Would you be faithful just like you have always been faithful? And would you help me to have faith in your unfailing faithfulness? We love you, Lord, and we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to go to the table. I have books. I also would love to pray for you. Uh, if you're struggling in faith or if you just made a decision today to trust your faith in Jesus, I know they have a number to text or someone to talk to. If you need help, ask somebody. Okay? Love you guys.